content warning. This episode contains language and topics pertaining to sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, and voyeurism. Hello and welcome to another episode of SG Explained, your podcast for all things Singapore related. And joining me today, as always, is my favorite host of all time, Mr. Rovek. Hey Rovek, how you doing, man? Good, good. I like that term, being called your favorite host, you know, I'll own it. <laughs> yes, okay, so hey, Rovek, how have you been this week, man? What do you do? It's been good, it's been good. You know, I'm still recovering from our last episode with Rennie and Andrew talking about Zook. That was really one of my more favorite episodes this season. I don't know if you guys can tell, but I drank quite a bit during that episode. I went back and I had a major hangover. Everyone was drinking, except for me. Thank goodness you were staying the course, Captain, because by like probably 45 minutes into it, I was just telling myself, I really gotta hold myself together, dude. I cannot. I remember like Andrew and Renny like sending us and telling us all these great stories about their time in Zoo. And it's it's crazy because we were actually talking with giants. They're veterans, they've done so much in both their individual industries as well as just in their personal lives. So today, uh, we don't have a special guest. But we are going to be talking about something rather serious and it's something that Rovik and I are trying, you know, something new. We're going to be tackling a topic that's come up in news quite recently and quite prevalently. We'll be discussing uh, sexual misconduct and sexual harassment within the Singaporean context. <laughs> Rovik and I, we're two, we're two men. In this case, we want to just, you know, contextualize and talk about uh, what we know in the news, some statistics that we could find, and then try to have a conversation about it from our point of view. Of course, we don't want to be closed off the discussion. So if any of our listeners would like to share their thoughts uh, throughout, you know, after the episode, please uh, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you guys. Talking about the fact that it's two men talking about a topic that affects all genders. We thought that we can still have this conversation, really own it from a perspective of masculinity and, and how it affects men as well. I'll admit upfront that this whole space of sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, uh, even just being aware of sexual dynamics was something that I had to explore without much teaching and coaching in Singapore. The normal approach within Singapore is very much one of abstinence, don't touch anything, try to be as pure and clean as possible. But that's not how the world works. You know, as I went through army, as I went through college, and even as we went through institutions like, you know, clubbing and Zook, you kind of had to discover where those lines existed. And it's a bit dangerous to go so close to those lines. And I've only been able to benefit from you know, good friends, good mentors who've been able to guide me along in, in my adult life to, to maybe not cross some of those lines. I think within a Singapore context, we don't talk about those lines enough. We don't talk about what it means for harm to occur because of sexual misconduct or sexual harassment. And a lot of that is perpetrated by men. It's quite disproportionately perpetrated by men. So this conversation is our attempt to own that from our perspective in conversations about the Singapore identity, I think we have to take the good and the bad. You know, our intent with this episode is really that by talking about it, we bring awareness to the issue. We articulate that this is something that we have to deal with. And hopefully that galvanizes people to put resources to talk about it more, to really direct an effort to addressing this issue because you cannot stand while people are getting harmed and people are having their lives affected in a negative way. As much as there's not much information out there, we're, we're going to make the best use of it and we're going to have a conversation today. Yeah, and even for us, 
I think it's kind of a learning experience trying to talk about something as serious as sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, uh, sexual assault within a space of a podcast. So we, we're going to just say that we really don't know uh, what it's like to be in those shoes. And hence, uh, open forum for it is actually a much uh, better space. And here it goes. We're going to start off by talking a little bit about the context and then uh, scope down a little bit more to very specific cases and then share not just our opinions, but kind of the conversations that are going around these pieces as well. Just to lay down the foundations for this conversation, in the past five years, uh, institutes of higher learning have handled a total of 172 official cases regarding sexual misconduct committed by both students and staff. Now, uh, this number was recently disclosed in Parliament, actually, on the 3rd of November this year. And it says the figure represents an incident rate of 0.12 for every 1,000 staff and students. That's actually quite an alarming number, if you ask me. And I also think we should take the number with a bit of context, right? I don't think that number is actually an accurate representation. So incidence rate signifies that this is the actual number of misconduct cases that are committed out of every... 1,000 staff and students, but actually it's not. It's the reporting rate. It's the reporting rate that's actually been deemed to have been committed. So that's actually not as big a number. And we'll talk a bit later about some of the skew in statistics and underreporting. Think about the population of any particular tertiary institute, be it a polytechnic, um, ITE, or university. That's still quite an alarming number. Uh, they count both staff and students. So we're not talking just about the enrollment of people inside, but even the faculty members involved as well. Unfortunately, sexual harassment is not defined within the Singapore law. We do have definitions for sexual assault and rape, but we basically borrowed the definition from European Commission, which has the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, as well as the International Labour Organization. So they define sexual harassment as covering two principal types. There is quid pro quo harassment and a hostile environment. So quid pro quo is basically, uh, it's basically sexual blackmail. It refused to the abuse of authority by a person who demands sexual favors, forcing the recipient to choose between acceding to those or losing certain types of benefits. Now, in the workplace, this can be, uh, occur between a boss and a subordinate or someone with influence versus someone who doesn't. Uh, within a school context, it can occur in the form of someone saying, I can give you better grades if you do something for me. It can even go as bad as threatening to fire or penalize someone if they don't give in to their sexual demands. The other type of sexual harassment is conduct that creates an intimidating, hostile, or offensive working environment to the recipient, interfering with his or her performance. An example would be in the work context, an environment where an individual is subject to unwelcome comments about his or her body parts by fellow employees, resulting in the individual feeling embarrassed and distressed and unable to work properly. Within a school context, it can be quite similar. It can be, you know, just people talking about their recent sexual exploits. It can be talking about someone's body parts in a similar way. So it, it really is a continuum of sorts. On one hand, you have maybe things that are considered by a lot of people as benign, but actually still making a lot of impact. In, that includes sexist remarks, nonverbal seductive gestures, catcalling, and it can go all the way to career threat, sexual assault, and rape. And sexual harassment can happen once 
or can be repeated over a couple of times. It's important to take this into context because a lot of times people always like to say like, this is not too severe. It's, you know, this guy just basically making comments. But actually, we need to recognize that sexual harassment occurs along a spectrum. There can be harm that's different across the spectrum, but at the same time, the impact is still not zero. Contextually, a lot of these things matter. And hence, the definition actually really helps us here, Rovik, in our conversation. Because when we go down to these specific cases later on, we'll understand that from the different points of view of people, their actions are deemed different, right? Not from their from their own point of view. In a country such as Singapore, where conversations about sexual harassment are just coming on the rise, right? Uh, a lot of news is starting to report it. A lot of coverage is coming on even social media where people are sharing their opinions on what is or is not. Uh, we're still super duper young. And, and the last thing that I think is important here is that in a lot of this, intent also plays a huge impact. Now, uh, let me be very clear here. Regardless of intent, if impact is made, I still feel like that's something that needs to be dealt with. But the whole role of intent is a bit complex and nuanced because where a lot of people fall short is because they don't even think that they're conducting sexual harassment. Because in Singapore and in a lot of countries, such behavior is normalized. It's thought of as just the way things are. Boys will be boys, girls will be girls. But actually, because of the impact that's happening, because of the harm that's happening, it's important to unpack some of these things, what people are calling toxic masculinity, what people are calling, you know, normalized rape culture. And to really say, actually, can we educate people that some of these things are unwanted, unwelcome, and offensive? We'll be trying to unpack a lot of this today, but I think some of this context and definition really, really matters. Unfortunately, a lot of naysayers towards what is sexual harassment is because of a sphere of ignorance where... They think, you know, because I did not intend to do something, just because someone feels that way, it just means their fault. Let's talk about something which was most recently in the news. This is from my school, NUS, and our most recent case involves uh, a man named Dr. Jeremy Fernando. Dr. Fernando was a lecturer and a college fellow at Tembusu College, NUS, and was sacked on October the 7th for me in an intimate relationship with an undergraduate. The main reason cited being that this was a breach of NUS's code of conduct for staff. However, there was also the case that the said undergraduate alongside another student alleged that Dr. Fernando had made non-consensual advances towards them. Uh, some of the outrage went beyond Dr. Fernando's actions towards NUS, actually, who filed the police report without the consent of the victims. NUS filed the police report against Dr. Fernando on October 21st to, quote, fulfill its legal obligations following allegations of sexual misconduct made by two students. I'm going to just quote the associate dean here who uh, gave a press release statement. He said, In filing this report, NUS takes into consideration our obligations under the law, the need for transparency, and the need to protect the privacy and interests of all parties, including reasonable grounds for delay. As partial information about the matter was already public, a police report was imminent. NUS also owes a duty of care to its students at large to ensure campus safety and weight this in our decision to file a report without prior agreement of either student. If an allegation has been made, the police would be best placed to assess if an offence was committed. So we're now venturing into the space of how victims who are reporting the cases that have happened to them, how they should be engaged and how they should be treated. And let me give maybe a comparison to the experience I had in Northwestern in my college there, where there is 
a national framework, right? So the national framework is called Title IX. Under Title IX, basically, there is a certain standardized framework in how victims, perpetrators should be managed by a university. And under Title IX, one of the things that I remember is that the victim ultimately has the final choice in how they want to take the case forward. They can choose whether they want to just report it to the college. They can choose whether they want to file a police report. They can even choose whether they want to maybe have some sort of a direct engagement with the perpetrator under a supervised context. The whole reason for this is because there's a recognition that a lot of agency has been taken away from the victim through such sexual harassment or sexual misconduct cases. Imagine if someone is basically stalking you or someone is harassing you, you already feel like you don't have control over some of your own life. And then for a school to go and file a police report while in the pursuit of justice, while with good intent, let's be very clear, the school isn't trying to be malicious here. It's really fulfilling its obligations and it's, it's legally obligated to do so. The impact is still that agency is then further taken away from the victim, especially if they don't want to engage with the justice system or worse, with the perpetrator. This brought up a very important tension point and organizations like AWARE actually spoke up about this and highlighted it as an issue. There really needs to be some level of discussion and acknowledgement of the various types of impact that such actions can do. The key thing here is to actually talk about the fact that Dr. Fernando himself was basically making non-consensual advances, right? It, it was quite ironic also because part of the backlash was from the fact that he wrote a paper in 2014 in response to the sex for grade scandals. He said that teachers should be above feelings towards their students. There needs to be basically a stronger view of, of issues like this. While Dr. Fernando was speaking out against the sex for grade scandal of 2014, there were certain parts where I think social media poked some holes in what he was talking about because he goes further in that paper to say that because society was always shocked by how feelings can be involved in these teacher-student relationships that the fantasy of being a teacher being above emotions should be maintained. Like he went on to say that what was important to society when it came to teacher-student relations was the appearance that the teacher awards grades on merit and does not have emotions. Well, in fact, one could even argue that the ability to do the job is almost less important than maintaining the image of a spotlessness and faultlessness. He then describes that teaching was about love and that what can be leveled at a teacher uh, who loves their student is unprofessionalism. Thus, a categorical dismissal of the potential relationship between a student and a teacher, even if this relationship extends to a sexual nature, is to make teaching a profession, which is not just to sterilize the one who teaches, it is a devastation of the possibility of thought itself. When uses words like sterilize, for example, it is really uh, very sanitary and sometimes used in a very negative context. Here's my response to this. I'm not an academic who's going to be able to write a thesis in response, but I feel like there's maybe a mischaracterization of the issue. Teaching while an act of love and passion is in service to maybe some of the ideas and philosophies that the teacher or the professor wants to engage in. When it comes to a student-teacher relationship, it really moves towards a place of care, a place of stewardship. And it's really a lot more, in my opinion, about making sure that you bring out the best in the other person. Now, if you were to say that because there is love and passion for the topics, then that love and passion can extend to a sexual nature to a student. I feel like there's a gross misunderstanding of your duty to your students. From an academic standpoint, I think he's trying to humanize the teaching profession, first and foremost, right? He's talking about how the teacher 
literally cannot be divorced from emotion, even though the job calls to be divorced from a certain kind of emotion. I think this is where people started to get a bit disturbed by what he was saying. This is where it gets problematic for me. I do think that teachers in uh, in actuality should be treated more human, that they are going to be prone to emotions and they are going to be prone to certain kinds of feelings especially if they're very passionate individuals. However, I think professionalism is the ability to recognize and still not act on certain things. I think action is something that will come up over and over again within this topic of sexual assault, sexual misconduct. If things were flipped on its head and we said the student in question was in a consensual relationship with with a professor, would, would that change things for you? That complicates things, but I feel like the principle is still there, right? First of all, are you able to fully execute your role as a professor and a teacher when you're in a relationship? Now, the answer is very likely going to be no. Because there is both a professional relationship and a personal relationship, even if there was no actual benefits given, any kind of professional benefits given because of the personal relationship, there is an impression. Right. And there's a perception of potential uh, abuse. As long as teacher-student relationship holds, then there's always something for something, even if it's only implied. You might not think it's there, but the, the terms of the relationship are already jeopardized as, as a result. I think it'll be good for us to kind of move on to talk a little bit more about the incidents. Let's just throw in some numbers for us to kind of think about last year. Uh, as reported by Today Singapore. By May 2019, there were 56 cases of sexual misconduct involving students from six local universities between 2017 and 2019, of which only 14 of those were committed off-campus. 25 of those cases involved students from NUS, and two were from Yale and US. So they have very different uh, board of directors uh, to handle these things. 20 were from NTU, Six from SNU, SUTD, SIT, and SUSS had one case each. That's about 56 cases. In 37 of these cases, the victim themselves made police reports. These are the cases that were known and were reported. But we need to remember that not all cases are going to get reported. Frankly, there's not many surveys being done. There's not that much investigation being done of the prevalence of these issues within Singapore. But I again, I took a comparative number. So within the US, which has a, a bit more of a consciousness and a bit more of, I guess, a movement around these issues, it is believed that only 15.8 to 35% of all sexual assaults are reported to the police. And this is according to the US Bureau of Justice Statistics. Now, if you were to take that number and maybe do some adjustments for Singapore, considering that we live in a very conservative society, considering that awareness of what sexual assault and harassment even means is pretty low, considering people may not know where to report these uh, issues to, then the reporting rate is likely to be much lower than 15.8 to 35%, which makes that number 56 probably a small drop in the ocean. You're right. It is just a drop in the ocean. That's kind of scary because uh, school is a place where social interaction is at its peak, I would say. Let's go back to the cases. Out of the 56 that we talked about, only 16 were prosecuted in court. 10 of those resulted in jail terms of between 10 days and 8 months. The cases which resulted in jail terms were for like serious offences involving outrage of modesty or multiple instances of voyeurism. Of the six non-jail cases, only four were placed on supervised probation, while another one received a discharge not amounting to an acquittal, uh, while the remaining case is still open. Mr. Ong repeated his call for local autonomous universities. And it's very it's very important that he, he calls out 
autonomous universities in this case to review their frameworks when handling cases of sexual misconduct. Penalties for egregious cases cannot be too lenient because they must balance deterrence with rehabilitation of the offender. The fact that we have to ask the universities to do something about it and coming from a minister, I think can be a bit of a problem because the universities also need guidelines and guidance in a field that the law itself has not uh, fully defined or gone to a further extent. Earlier on, when you talk about Title IX, that is like a nationwide sort of framework to help universities uh, set a standard and sort of like a tone for everyone else to follow. And maybe the issue to call out here is that it's unclear where the lines between the school, university, and maybe the national legal system lies, right? So what is school policy and what is supposed to be the law is perhaps unclear. And that's not to say that there is any absence of the law. In fact, later on, we'll talk about some of the laws in place to help victims in such cases. But where does the school have an obligation and role? Where does the law need to come in? Where does the community come in? And where does advocacy come in? These are issues that as a country, we need to have a discussion about. There is no correct answer. Let's be very clear here. There is no correct answer, but the lack of a discussion prevents us from actually coming up with effective solutions. The reason this was a thing and why Minister Ong had to talk about it was because some of you may remember there was the Monica Bay incident, right? So uh, last year, there was a voyeur in NUS who took some pictures of uh, Miss Monica Bay and she had to deal with a lot of social media where she talked about her incident publicly. Uh, it became really a fiasco for like a good month or so. During the time seeking closure, Miss Bay says a change had finally come when Mr. Ong started talking a lot about uh, how we need to do better. More still needs to be done. Mr. Ong also noted that voyeurism was on the rise and disclosing the penalties imposed by the local universities for the six cases, uh, he was sharing with us that five cases are pending this many hearings while four students withdrew from universities before sanctions were imposed. It shows me to the extent to which the university itself cannot do enough. What's important to note about the Monica Bay incident is that Monica Bay uh, used her voice, partially because of her personality, partially because of maybe some of her background. She was able to say, this isn't right, let me say something about it. and. If you were to unpack that case, if you were to unpack the whole series of incidents that happened after she went up and made that uh, post on her social media, we realized that it wasn't an easy journey for her. There was a lot of victim blaming. There was a lot of accusations about whether she was being authentic. People were siding with the perpetrator sometimes. They were basically saying, like, he just made a mistake. You know, why do you want to vilify him so much? And I think it's important that we recognize that these things speak to a wider societal and cultural issue within Singapore. So while the law can play the role of creating the lines and the boundaries that should exist, a lot of determination on whether we stay within those boundaries still happens to come back to our values and how we deal with such issues as a society in our in our conversations and in our reactions. If Miss May didn't speak up, then we still wouldn't find that gap in which both the law and the universities are ill-prepared to handle such cases, right? If there wasn't a discussion sparked by it, I don't think we would even be in this state a year later 
a whole year where now I think uh, NUS has opened up NUS Victim Care Unit, uh, the VCU. The officers, they will sort of like help the students uh, to file the police report and give continued support by the VCU. As good as that is, the VCU is still not prepared to help the, the victim decide, okay, should we press charges or not? Because the bigger body, which is NUS itself, seems to have the final say right now. And a lot of that has to still do with the legal obligation. Within the law, they are legally obligated to make a report. There is reason for it. So let me be very clear and say that it's really a decision between protecting the victim's choice versus ensuring justice. I think within Singapore, the bias has always been towards justice. The bias has always been towards the legal system. To some extent, it speaks to how we are designed as a society. At the same time, I think we need to recognize the impact. So, you know, just in response to that, the victim care unit, I think that's uh, a huge indication that part of the response cannot be just one of justice. It's also one of healing and restoration for the victim in terms of providing mental health support, in terms of providing counseling. It also has to include rehabilitation. And I think this is a sticky space across the world. Even within the US, there is a conversation about whether people who are conducting sexual assault, whether they even deserve any kind of penance because their acts are so vile and gross. Because you're basically taking away something from someone else that is so core to their identity, something that's in their flesh and blood. There is a sense that no, that is the line in which we don't even see a potential for rehabilitation. That's a conversation that we need to have more of within Singapore. Why do we feel like rehabilitation is still important for these perpetrators? And what does that even look like? How do we still balance healing for the survivors and then rehabilitation for the perpetrator? It's now opened up this platform where schools like NTU, for example, they've just recently in November posted up a FAQ section on harassment, sexual misconduct, and residential hall security. So this is the university's official stance on these three main topics. And it's, it's quite heartening in a sense because it, you know they reinforce time and time again in this FAQ that they have a zero tolerance stance towards any form of harassment. And they even have some guidelines now on existing anti-harassment measures uh, that they've put into a document that you can find on the website. NTU has a zero-tolerance stance towards all forms of harassment, including bullying, voyeurism, and sexual misconduct. The students' disciplinary processes and sanctions framework provides for expulsion of students found guilty of sexual misconduct where warranted. And examples of misconduct for which any offender may be expelled include, but are not limited to, the following. Commission of multiple acts of misconduct, sharing of voyeuristic videos taken, sexual assault, and other serious forms of sexual misconduct. They talk about it in four pillars that support this idea of how they deal with sexual misconduct. This is what I would I would say all tertiary institutes or even workplaces need. Guidelines, not just to uh, dissuade future perpetrators, but to ensure that when the time comes and if, if you know shit hits the fan theoretically that you are prepared to tackle it with real policy so here are the four pillars right they have education uh, prevention discipline and support so the first one they put right on top is education which says here it's briefing for approvers student leaders and organizers of programs aimed at new students when they first arrive at NTU so even in the induction process they need to know what these boundaries are so like things like your freshman orientation, they have mandatory briefings on harassment and misconduct, and new online module on anti-harassment for student organizers and freshmen participating in orientation programs uh, from July 2019 onwards. So what does this do? 
I think it's it's good because it helps people identify when something has gone wrong. It no longer gives you the charge of ignorance and it makes sure that everyone is accountable for their actions. You put it mandatorily in there and you say, this is our stance on everything. Don't try anything funny, which also is a form of prevention, which is the second pillar where they have... Uh, you know, they increase hall security measures to provide a safe and secure living environment for their students. Uh, NTU further emphasizes a culture of mutual respect and support, which includes advocating and encouraging students to look out for each other. Now, this is, you know, this is more of like trying to create culture la, and to ensure that there is a community-centric effort for it. There was some backlash right then when this was announced for hall security measures. It's a change, right? Like last time, you never, you never really hear about them wanting to install like uh, cameras outside like toilets and all that kind of stuff. They change to like those cut pass systems as well so that everyone, you know, like some movement is tracked. People were people were quite taken aback because that's not the way of life or whole life that people were used to. If it's in the interest of safety, my stance is it's better there than not. And I think the other key thing here is where the community has probably not done service to its members, then the system needs to play a role. I think it's important, right? Like SUSS is collaborating with the police to train its security staff to inspect toilet cubicles and ceilings for the illegal installation of spy cameras. These are some of the things that need to be done by the system to make sure that those boundaries and lines are in place for people to operate within. The third pillar that they place down here, and it's a very important one, quite a chunky one, is a discipline. Disciplinary sanctions meted out against student offenders in the past have included just like termination of candidature, suspension, expulsion from hostels, mandatory counselling, and rehabilitation. Uh, in the case of employees, so now they've even placed out guidelines for staff members, sanctions may include demotion, suspension, termination, mandatory counselling, reassignment of duties, and an official reprimand. The student disciplinary framework undergoes periodic reviews to ensure continued relevance of the rationale for its policies and efficacy of existing procedures. Discipline always is the one which I think tends to bring out a lot of voices because some people are like, man, this guy kicked him out of school, doesn't deserve a second chance and stuff like that. It's going to be very case-by-case basis sort of thing. As much as, you know, I really wish there was one broad stroke that we can do for everything, it's it's never the right way to approach. And last but not least, the final pillar is support, where existing processes are in place to ensure pastoral care support for both the victim and the alleged offender because sometimes, and I like that they put alleged because sometimes it is, they are just allegations. Um, and they have a peer helping program which trains volunteer students, peer helpers uh, who can serve as a bridge between an affected student and counsellors. This is quite a holistic approach and it's very nice to see that NTU kind of sets it up quite squarely. So let me introduce two gaps that I think exist within policy and it's, it's a space that we need to talk about more. And, and I totally understand why NTU has not put it in its policy yet. The first is about community. And I think when it comes to the space of community, it's really about how do we empower students, especially who are running different student organizations, who are more in these spaces, whether it's hall, whether it's in late night study sessions, to be able to handle these issues, whether it's observation, whether it's being able to report or, or provide support. The reason why I say this is a gap is because 
at the end of the day, we struggle with understanding our obligation to one another. We struggle with very, very big concepts around Paisei culture, right? We don't feel like we should interfere in someone else's life. We don't feel like we have an obligation to, to help someone else unless they invite help. Oftentimes, what that does is that it isolates a lot of people. People feel like they, they cannot find support. They cannot engage. And let's be real. Student life, a lot of it is invisible from the system, right? People are going to be having parties people are going to be hanging out by themselves whether or not it's in the hall they could be doing it outside in their own residences but it's still two students who are meeting under that frame of hey we're both students in this college and so we need to be able to empower student leaders empower fellow students to be able to do stuff in this space I, I, you know and i'll give an example i was talking to actually a professor from nus she was told by nus to basically start running some of these prevention sessions, right? So it's it's education sessions that happen to freshmen, incoming freshmen. And the idea was to talk to them about consent, about sexual assault, about what you can do when these issues happen. Now, her observation was very important for us to recognize. Her observation was that no one spoke up. No one was willing to have a conversation because they did not see how they could have that conversation. They were either embarrassed they were unaware of what these topics are. Uh, they were scared to engage in these topics. And so if the community doesn't feel prepared to be able to deal with this, then you have a long way between the incident and any form of actual support. Student leaders need to really be empowered to be able to have these conversations. And that brings me to my next point, which is culture. In Singapore, we need to acknowledge that our culture is very hyper-masculine. It's very much led by an influence by strongman culture, whether that's because a lot of the men who are coming into college come from the army. There is a lot of bolstering of like machoism. There's a lot of bolstering of like, this is what a man is. And let's be real, Elliot, you and I, from our military days, we've witnessed and we've seen all this talk about like sexual exploit. Some of our army songs used to have pretty crude and derogatory terms in it. And now, thankfully, we've removed them or we've replaced the lyrics. But it's still the kind of culture that follows into college. If you remember the orientation games in NUS at a certain point were pretty lewd. It involved people having to like make very, very close physical contact that people found inappropriate. And then it goes back to the culture that we have within Singapore. It goes back to the culture that if not dealt with, goes into the workplace and goes into how people see themselves conducting themselves in family life, in interpersonal life. At a cultural level, if people don't want to talk about this, then you have a lot of incidences that are ha going to be happening without a dialogue around it. We want to create safe environments. University or schools in general fit a very a much younger population of, of Singaporeans. So the next bit, I guess, is some research that we found. It's on this website called YouGov, and they do stats basically for Singapore and Singaporeans. The latest YouGov omnibus research found that a quarter of Singapore women have experienced sexual harassment. The number is 26%, compared to 1 in 10 men, So that's which is only a 9%, so slightly under 10%. Of those who face sexual harassment, only 52% reported or told someone about the incident. Now, this number is, is important. It's not about reporting to the authorities. This is about reporting it partially to the authorities, but 
Sometimes it's just even sharing it with the people around you. And that counts towards this number of 52%. And a lot of people who are not even talking about it with the people around them. Basically carrying that burden by themselves. By themselves, yeah. And that to me is a very scary number. Uh, women are more likely to report an incident than men, 56% against 40%. And amongst those who reported the incident, most told a friend or family uh, about being sexually harassed rather than the police. 19% of people told the police. And that contributes back to the incidence rate that we talked about right at the beginning, right? Because that incidence rate is going to be coming from the number of cases that are reported to authorities and not to friends or family. So that that really puts things a lot more into context into actually what is the prevalence of sexual harassment within Singapore. Here it was cited that the main reason people chose not to report sexual harassment was mostly from embarrassment, where 42% said it was that. Fear of repercussion was a major thing as well, with 30% of the participants uh, saying that was the reason they chose not to report. And the last 29% said that they felt that no one would do anything about the problem. It's important to recognize that this survey happened in 2019. So it's very recent when what people call woke culture is already <laughs> making its way out, right? So people understand uh, topics around sexual harassment, sexual assault a bit better. So there is this whole view about victim blaming that I think we need to tackle within Singapore. Especially within Singapore, there is the sense that victim blaming is quite acute. So Ms. Shaley Hingorani, head of research and advocacy at AWARE, observed that there's still a lack of progress on victim blaming attitudes. An example is that 45% of respondents polled in the same survey agreed that women who wear revealing clothes should not complain if men make comments about their appearance. This view is not only held by men, 44% of Singaporean women agree or strongly agree with the same statement compared to 46% of males. This sentiment was more commonly held by Singaporeans above the age of 50, which reinforces generational differences. Apparently, these figures don't differ much from the survey that was conducted in 2012 and 2013, indicating that victim blaming is not only a practice that's in Singapore, it's entrenched. Dr. Rolls Abraham from Better Life Clinic said that there are people who believe that bad things cannot happen to good people or to those who have done everything right. Therefore, if something bad happens to you, it must be because you did something wrong. It is a form of protective mechanism that allows people to believe that they have control over atrocities that happen. The observer does finds it hard to accept that such an atrocity could happen to the victim of sexual crimes, and myth and fallacies surrounding sexual violence also fuel blame on victims. It, it goes back to this whole idea that boys will be boys. It's inevitable that men will assault those around them. The counterpart of this fallacy is that all men are uncontrollably violent and that all women should, for their safety, try their best not to provoke such violence in men. And these extremely pervasive beliefs have steeped into our culture so much that most sexual violence survivors feel guilt and self-blame following an assault. Rather than to see themselves as people who were assaulted, they see themselves as people who invited the assault. Dr. Rose Abraham said that sexual violence remains a taboo topic, especially in an Asian society where such crimes are often linked to the concept of immorality. There is a perception that victims of sexual violence invite the violence by how they acted, dressed, and so forth. And, you know, you, you see this a lot in how people talk about sexual misconduct cases, where there's always a sense of she must have done something or he must have done something to invite that assault. And, and it's always very dangerous because you don't actually blame the assaulter for doing what they did, right? There is very little blame attributed to the person. It's almost as if you're accepting that that's just going to be the way that they are going to behave. 
uh, that they could not help themselves in the face of temptation. So I agree with this idea that it's generational, right? I go back to the book I was reading a while ago about how we disappeared about comfort women in Singapore. Um, the story actually follows this lady who gets brought to, who gets stolen, kidnapped to become a comfort woman for the Japanese soldiers. And when she actually was brought back to her family, her whole family completely refused to acknowledge that she could have been a comfort woman because they did not want to deal with the reality that she had been raped and assaulted systematically, right? It's this culture that we have in Singapore. We refuse to acknowledge that harm can be done and harm can be done by men who may appear good in the eyes of everyone else, but actually could have done this. And I think this is a reckoning that we need to have as a country. In terms of of victim blaming, I like to hear from inside with the uh, victim first, just because there is a lot more to lose, I I suppose, uh, when you are the victim. Listening is really the first step uh, in any case. I was in an all-boys school. So in a very hyper-masculine sort of of, uh, environment, you tend to, you know, always think that that person who something happened to them means that they couldn't stand up for themselves, they were weak, there was something they could, have, they could have done to prevent the situation. Not for a lack of trying. To avoid being sexually harassed, half of Singaporean women regularly take precautions, and a nearly equal number, 47% of men, say they do not take any precaution. The most common ways people take precautions are to avoid certain areas, so that's 68%, avoiding and minimizing interaction with strangers, that's 58%, avoiding being out at certain times, 48%. Men are more likely to learn self-defense skills than women, and women are more likely to dress a certain way than men. And so, you know, we are all changing our habits and behaviors. We need to be able to respond to bad people that exist. But actually, there should be a focus also to prevent these people from even being able to, to do their actions, right? Whether it's educating them and changing their behaviors before they actually cross that line, or when they do cross that line, to have a huge sign of deterrence. I think this really paints a very stark and sobering image of how sexual harassment and assault is happening in our country. It's actually quite quite telling of um, where we are at. Uh, they point towards uh, a situation where victims tend to want to uh, silence themselves as well because by and large, they deem society as not ready to welcome them or to take care of them in the case that it does blow up. But Ruby, what does the law have to say? Is there any you know, current legal grounds that protect people. Again, going back to this idea of a continuum, right, whether sexual harassment on one end and rape all the way on the other hand, we have two main legal instruments that help us with responding to sexual harassment and sexual assault cases. So on the 13th March 2014, the Singapore Parliament passed the Protection from Harassment Act, which is also known as the POHA. And the POHA strengthens existing penalties for harassment and introduces new offenses such as stalking. It also provides a range of self-help measures, civil remedies and criminal sanctions relevant to sexual harassment. So that's one. The other legal instrument is a penal code. So when sexual harassment happens, we can normally break it down into non-physical and physical. POHA allows you to be able to file a suit. Section 377BB of the Penal Code also criminalizes voyeurism, where there's physical offense like molest or rape. The Penal Code provides harsh sanctions. Both men and women are protected by these sections. Unlawful stalking is criminalized under Section 7 of the POHA, and basically over here, you're able to also file protection orders from the court against the perpetrator. If you want to do something and you are feeling like there is no way to to seek 
recourse. Actually, know that the police can help you. The police are there to help you. They are there from a justice perspective. So you can go to them if you feel safe and you want to do it. I, I feel like part of this conversation needs to acknowledge that while community and and systems that are in place need to create better structures and policy uh, around it. The police and the justice system also exist to help people. Uh, the court can also order a convicted offender to pay monetary com- compensation to the person injured. There is a way for you to seek damages. Just know that you can be empowered with some of these tools at your disposal. This is a really good start, I think. We've already identified several gaps. I would love it to have like more uh, sort of like frameworks. What's important to acknowledge here is that this conversation is fastly evolving, right? A lot of people are reacting to this and saying, hey, the goalpost is moving. But the goalpost is moving because people's voices are finally being heard, right? We have all been complicit in one way or another in perpetrating some of these cultures. And a lot of the reasons why men may feel triggered by some of the actions taken against perpetrators is because a lot of us have maybe been complicit either by making a joke, by being very close to the line, by laughing when someone says they've done something and then we just laugh it off. Actually, those are all things that now no longer stands because our values need to recognize the protection of everyone in our society. And and I, I love that the Me Too movement is taking that on. And even uh, post the Me Too movement, these conversations are happening. One of my favorite evolutions, for example, is the move from victim to survivor, right? Where women are basically saying, I'm not a victim. You cannot pu- put me in a submissive position. I'm a survivor and I'm taking agency for my narrative, right? And I think that's a powerful way to basically say, you cannot define me by what happened to me. You can define me by what I'm going to do in response. And I think that's a powerful way this conversation is evolving. We all need to be part of the conversation. Men, women, non-binary, wherever you are, we need to be part of this conversation. We need to lend our voice if possible. And if you feel hurt and you feel like you've been damaged by the system, we're going to put some resources in the show notes that you can go to to find some help and support. Or if if you still feel like you want to reach out, we'll love to connect you to maybe some of the resources directly and, and help you with that. So on that note... Doing the research for this was actually quite a thought-provoking process. And I don't think that I've even gone through every single argument in my head how I, even as a male uh, in society, should start to talk about these things, be more open, uh, be a stronger ally and to be a you know a more prominent voice like in all the spaces and social circles that I'm in. It really requires a lot more for us as a society because we tend to not talk about things which are difficult. Keep on having these conversations. Being wrong, I think, is part of that process. Anything that we said inside this podcast today, which you know, we might have to take back in maybe a year or two or maybe even a week or two uh, that I won't be embarrassed by that in fact I'll be quite happy to be corrected and to kind of like firm up my stance in the many moments to come yeah it's part of how we evolved a conversation right and 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 this is our promise to our audience right that Elliot and I don't see this as in any way us showing that we're experts in this in fact it's it's our commitment to continue the conversation in whatever spaces that we have i know that i'll be continuing it in some of the communities i'm a part of and i invite everyone to find their own communities to have this conversation and thank you all so much for tuning into this episode of sg explains uh we'll try to see um if we can do you know other heavier topics in the future let us know what you think or if there's anything you'd like us to talk about i think i had a very enlightening time 
reckoning as well as a very introspective uh, moment during this episode. There needs to be a reckoning within Singapore, an articulation of where these issues are coming from and how it's impacted us. And the key thing that we're hoping for is that as a society, in whatever places that we are, whether it's in the legal system, whether it's in our structures, whether it's in our culture and values, that we move forward and find ways to direct resources and conversations about these topics. Let's do that. We'll see you in the next episode of SG Explained. Take care and have a good one. Bye-bye.